Matthew 27, verse 45 is where we'll start today. This, this is a, believe it or not, I've looked forward to preaching this text because this is a fun text. Now, I realize if you've read through this, you're not thinking that, um, especially if you're with us last week. Um, we had to look at the hard, the hard topic of the crucifixion. And Jason walked us through what that probably looked like. How many of you guys have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Um, what, what we discussed last week was G, rated G in comparison to that movie. Um, there's, there's not a scene that we have seen, you understand what I mean, that compares to the actual thing that happened. And so with that, we approach the text last week with much awe and reverence, and this week is very much the same. Um, But I want to point out where we're at in Matthew's gospel, and and I appreciate what we do with the kids' message um, each Sunday with Jason, because he kind of says, well, where are we at in the story? We're now at the story when Jesus is hanging on the cross, right? Last week, he was put there. This week we're in the text that he is hanging there. He is fighting. As we talked about last week, I mean, he is, he is pushing up on those nails to just get one more breath. And he is fighting for every last one of them, preparing for that moment when, as our text will say today, that he gives up his spirit. And so Matthew 40, I'm sorry, Matthew 27 verse 45. Let's read it together through 56 and then we'll have a word of prayer. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's, let's pray one more time. Lord, as, as we just sang, God, lead us to the cross, rid us of ourselves this morning, give us ears to hear what you would have in Christ's name, amen. Okay, the events that took place during the crucifixion, as I just mentioned, they're not pleasant to read about, they're not pleasant to think about, and yet I want us to understand why they occurred. Okay, 
the horrors that Jesus endured through the scourging, the whipping, the crucifixion itself, they remind us of something. And it's this. Jesus willingly endured the suffering and went to the cross. Why? Because of His love for the Father and His love for all those who would believe on His name. That's why He went. That's why He went willingly. They did not drag Him. He went willingly. This thought struck me as, as Jason was, was sharing last week. As, as the whip was you know laying into His back and all of the things that go along with that, the nails being pounded into His wrists and through His feet, I, I just couldn't help but think, I don't think he's thinking about himself in that moment. When he was being crucified on the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. I mean, obviously he was experiencing excruciating pain, right? That word actually comes from the crucifixion, excruciate. He was feeling those things. The Romans intended for that to happen in crucifixion. But I don't think he was thinking about himself. I think he was thinking about me. I think he was thinking about you. And I know that it's probably cliche to put it this way. You may have heard it this way. But when Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind. Right away, the earth starts to change. Right In all of this scene... Lots of things happen. I mean, we're going to go through some of them, but lots of monumental, big-time things happen. Why? Well, because this was an important event. And the, the words that Jesus says, we talked about last week, are the same words that David said 900 or so years beforehand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? i I got to believe these are some of the most depressing words in all of Scripture. The creator of all is hanging on a cross, not forgotten, but forsaken by the Father. God turned his back on his son. Why? Because he became sin. Paul to the Corinthians says this. He became sin in our place. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the, the character of Barabbas. The sermon was titled, In Our Place, We Are Barabbas. Christ took our cross, the punishment that we deserved, Jesus took. And brothers and sisters, He does the same thing today. He takes the punishment that we deserved and gives us freedom. He breaks the chains off of us and sets us free. Now, in our text, we see that after He says this, some people say, well, He's calling for Elijah. So I don't know if this was a language barrier issue um, the, the, mis- the Roman soldiers maybe misunderstood him. Um, Eli, thinking he was talking about Elijah. Um, we know that Elijah was a forerunner of the Messiah, but he was not the Messiah himself. And at this point in, in history, he was long gone. Somebody goes, gets Jesus something to drink, but they mock him with it. It wasn't like, you know, on a hot summer day, Somebody goes and gets you a big glass of ice water or a big glass of iced tea or lemonade or whatever you enjoy. Um, that wasn't what happened here. This, even the offer of a drink was mockery. They were trying to make fun of them because they added some bitter things to it. It was just done to ridicule and embarrass Jesus. And they were also deceived by the evil one 
And because of this consistent rejection of the Messiah, they solidified their judgment that would be coming. And brothers and sisters, I got to say, this danger still exists today. To hear the truth of the gospel and still want to turn away from it. Still want to plug our ears to it. In scripture, when the, the phrase, they gnashed their teeth at the stoning of Stephen, says that they gnashed their teeth at him. It was almost as if they were making noise so that they could not hear what he was saying. They were so close. And Jason quoted John Newton last week from a song. And the last stanza went like this. It said, Thus he spent his wicked breath in the very jaws of death, perished as too many do with the Savior in his view. This was talking about the thief on the cross that rejected Christ. This is the danger that we would be so near to the Savior and miss Him like that thief did. That we would sit through worship services week in and week out and our hearts never really belong to the Savior. That's the danger. But the good news is that God's patience has obviously been extended to you today. You're here. You're breathing. God's patience has been extended don't delay in trusting Him. Now, the events that happen from this point on in this story just really confirm the magnitude of the death of Jesus. They all kind of snowball into this understanding that we get that this was a big, big deal. With the last bit of strength that Jesus has, He pulls Himself up on the nails, up on that little sedeculous seat, that they had put up there for him. And he gives up his spirit. In the the Gospel of John, we hear his last words are, it is finished. Now there's a whole lot wrapped up in those few words. That's a sermon for a different time. Um, But at this point, after he breathes his last, gives up his spirit, this is where things start to get a little bit interesting. I I just want to go through them just really quickly. Uh, Matthew records them, and he gives us like, Zero explanation for them. This is just what it was. This is how it happened. And so let's go through them uh, just real quick. If you've got your notes, they're listed in there. I I failed to put in the notes that the sky went dark, right? Darkness covered the land. That's kind of a big deal. So number one on your list, it says, after that, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. Rocks were split Tombs were opened. The bodies of saints who had passed away were raised back to life. Those resurrected saints then went and walked around Jerusalem after Jesus was raised. What in the world is going on here? And there's a purpose to these things. I really do. Um, we all have heard, we probably heard about the sky going dark and the earthquakes and the veil in the temple being torn. But people coming back to life, there's no denying that this is an unusual event. There's unusual things happening here, but I think there is a point that we need to understand about it. The death of Jesus was such a monumental event, not just in the timeline of God's redemptive history, but also in its effect on the physical world itself. How could this not be a huge event? Think about that. How could this not be a huge event? How could the physical world not be affected by the death of its creator? It had to be affected. And there's more here going on than meets the eye. The verbiage that that Matthew uses as he writes this 
um, is sort of unusual as far as the timing of when things occurred. And so I just kind of want to go through these events after Jesus' death, almost like in reverse order. And you'll see the purpose of that in a minute. Um, he records some of these events occurring right after Jesus' death and then some after the resurrection. Okay, so those thi- the things that happened right after he died was that the curtain was torn, the earth was shaken, rocks were split apart, and tombs were opened. Those four things happened immediately when Christ gave up his spirit. Then we're told that a few of these things happened after his resurrection. The saints with whom those tombs belonged to, right, the tombs that were opened, the saints who were in those tombs now come back to life after Christ has been risen, and then they, they start walking around the city. Now, this is undoubtedly the most unusual part of the story. And to be perfectly honest, it would have been easy to skim over this part and not have to deal with this unusual kind of a thing. But this is one of the benefits, positive, of of expositional preaching. We, We have to deal with the text of what it says. It keeps your pastor from being lazy. It doesn't let me off the hook here. I have to research, I have to study, I have to see what's going on here. And I think that, in fact, there's something really profound that we need to understand from this sort of thing. It's kind of tucked away in this really unusual series of events. It's no coincidence, though, that Matthew uses the same word when he's talking about the temple being torn. If you've got a a King James, I think the word they use is rent. The curtain is torn in the temple, and the rocks are torn in the ground. It's the same word that Matthew uses here. Think about it this way. When Jesus' body was torn on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn. When Jesus' body was broken on the cross, the rocks in the ground were broken. This is the, the, the similarities that's going on here. The stones that once held these dead bodies in their graves were no longer there. They were broken where they sat. This is how, this is what Matthew is helping us understand through the way he's writing it. The purpose wasn't just physical destruction. It wasn't just like, okay, destroy the, the temple curtain. Just destroy the rocks and the tombs. That wasn't the point. The point was that it represented something new being established. Something new was happening here. After Jesus' resurrection, the tombs that had belonged to dead saints, right? Church members, believers who were in the graves are now walking around alive. Can you just imagine that scene for a second? Now, we're not told who these saints were. They may have been long past. They may have been just shortly past. We're not sure. But imagine it now for a second from the perspective of someone who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Think about that for just a second. If you refuse to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, right? Because he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be God. You refuse to believe that though. Then all of a sudden the sky goes dark in the middle of the day. The earth starts to shake after his death. Rocks, giant rocks, you know, rocks are the foundation that we build things on. Now the foundations of things are just splitting apart. Now, Dead people are brought back to life walking around the city with you. Imagine that for a second. Now, at that point, when the 
the, the dead start walking back in. And they're not dead anymore. But when they start walking back into Jerusalem, it's been a few days since Christ's death on the cross. Remember that. They didn't rise until after Jesus has risen. So you, it, it was something that maybe you started to forget about. You're out there saying, crucify him, crucify him. He dies, as you expect. He goes in the ground. It's three days later, two and a half, three days later. You might start to forget about the whole situation. There might be a little buzz still in the, in the community. But now, eh, not so much. But then, all of a sudden, you start hearing rumors that Jesus isn't in the grave anymore. He's not, he's not in there. He's gone. Not only that, but a bunch of his followers who used to be dead are now walking around right next to us. What would you think? Here's what I think they should have thought and what I think we should think about it today. It's this. The grave that held all those dead people in was very soon going to get a new master. The one who has victory over the grave was soon going to take control. Jesus would be victorious over death. He, it wasn't going to hold him down. Hebrews 2 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Through the death of Jesus, the devil has no more power, has no more authority. In This is going way far back. In 1647, a Puritan by the name of John Owen wrote a, a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Did you follow with me in that? Think about the title of his book and what it implies. It implies this. When Jesus died, he killed death. In doing so, Jesus killed its power and he killed its sting. And in Matthew 27, the death of Jesus opens tombs and gives life to mortal bodies that once did not have life anymore. But notice that it says in in that text, that it doesn't say everybody. It just says many. The bodies of many saints were raised. The resurrection of, of God's people, once and for all, is a, is a future event, to be sure. But what we have in the text here is just a foretaste. It's kind of like a movie trailer. It's a preview of what's to come. And it, was, it had to be an incredible sight. It had to be amazing. It was unmistakable that something big was happening here. For the sky to go dark, the earth to quake, rocks to split open, tombs to open, the veil being torn, dead people coming back to life. This was not an everyday event. And that's the point that this is all coming to. This wasn't just a crazy hallucination by a bunch of Jesus' followers. This was real. This was public. This was verifiable. The effect of Jesus' death had and still has huge implications in our world today. Now, with all this earth-shaking and rock-breaking and dead people coming back to life, that made it no question Something different happened here. Something unique and momentous happened here. We see that because even the hardened Roman centurion, the guy in charge of making sure Jesus was dead, after seeing everything that we read about, he says, man, they were right. This guy was the son of God. 
Now, I, I don't know that that resulted in saving faith for him. Uh, it didn't in that thief on the cross that we mentioned before. But there was no denying that the, Im- the impact that it had on everyone around that saw. What about the veil? What about the torn curtain in the temple? So we've moved kind of backwards through these events. This is one of the first things that's mentioned after Christ breathes his last. It says the veil, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So to understand the significance of this, we just need to go back um, a little bit, you know, just a couple thousand years back into Old Testament history and understand a little bit more about the sacrificial system and the tabernacle in particular. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, um, but I, I want us to understand the setup of it. And Jason mentioned this with the kids, right? In the tabernacle, there were some specific sections, okay? Uh, if you've ever seen a diagram of this, maybe some of your Bibles has, has this in the book of Exodus or in the back or somewhere. You have a diagram or a, of the temple yard or of the, the temple itself, tabernacle. And it shows that there are two major sections in this, the most holy place and the holy place, right? The holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies, your Bible might say. The priest, the holy place is a place that the priest would go into every day to offer sacrifices for the sin of the people, right? So every day someone is coming to offer sacrifice. The priests are doing this for them. And so there's blood being shed on the altar there. Uh, things are happening. That's sin happened. And in God's provision for that in the Old Testament, blood was shed. This was how God set it up. Now, the, the holy of holies or the most holy place is a, an area that the priest, the high priest, would only go in once a year. And that's, that was a big process. He had to atone for his own sins before he could go in and atone for anyone else's sins. Um, I've, I've even heard it said that they would, they would tie a, a rope around his foot so that if he was unworthy and was struck dead, that they could pull him out without having to go in there themselves. Um, it was a big deal for the priest to go in to the Holy of Holies. God intended it to be this way. He intended us to understand that we were to take this very, very seriously. And as you might guess, there was something special that, that separated those two areas. The veil. The curtain separated the holy place and the holy of holies. But it wasn't just any old curtain. Okay? And in doing some, some reading into this, it's possible that this curtain was 60 feet tall. It's possible that this curtain was a full four inches thick. Some of you guys have been to those strongman competitions. You guys have seen those? They're like ripping cast iron skillets in half and stuff. I don't understand it. It doesn't seem right. But have any of you tried to rip a phone book in half? Four-inch phone book? I mean, it probably could be done, but paper is different than fabric, right? And so we're talking four inches, 60 feet tall, and this thing gets, gets ripped. Now, why in the world such drastic measurements? I think there's that. It's to reinforce this idea that there had to be separation between the place that God was and the place that sinners were. That was the point. But why? 
Didn't God want to be near his people? Didn't God want to be with those that he loved? Well, I think we can say absolutely yes. Think about the garden when he created Adam and Eve. What did he do in the cool of every, every evening? He walked with them. He was there in intimate relationship with them and friendship with them. He wants to be with his people. He makes it clear, but we also know from that story with Adam and Eve why the separation now exists. Because of sin. Right? The curtain was a constant reminder that sin makes us unfit for the presence of God. It does. It is the problem that faces every human being today. You'll hear this phrase again a little later, but it's as if the curtain is there to tell us, because of our sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. You can't be with God where He is. And this is the problem that the veil represented. How can a perfectly holy God be close to and in relationship with people that are not holy, people that are full of sin. The curtain made it clear that in their current state, they couldn't be close to God. There had to be separation because of sin. So sin had to be atoned for. That was the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that was implemented. implemented, And it was done that way as a temporary solution to sin. Now, it lasted for a long time, but it was still only a temporary solution to the problem of sin. God's plan, God's everlasting plan, included something far greater, something permanent. Something ushered in by the sacrifice of a perfect offering, one that completely and permanently satisfies the requirements of God himself. And the writer of Hebrews connects the veil with Christ in a specific way. I want us to turn there. Turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll give you just a second to find it. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. If you're maybe reading through the Bible or reading through parts of the Old Testament that you don't understand, take a moment, take a few months and read through Hebrews. I mean, it'll give you so much insight into the Old Testament. Specifically here with Christ in the curtain. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Did you catch it? Did you catch the way that Hebrews identifies the, the, the curtain with the flesh of Jesus? He says it this way. He says, when the flesh of Jesus was torn, the curtain was torn. The brutality that Jesus endured is highlighted really even more when you think about the fact that he never sinned. I was talking with a friend this week about this. And your very worst enemy, you probably wouldn't even want to have to see go through that. 
because of the extent of the excruciating pain, the brutality of what it was. You probably wouldn't wish that on your very most hated enemy. And yet, the one who endured that willingly never sinned. Never made a single mistake. He went to the cross in my place. Even though he was the spotless lamb who had done nothing wrong, he went to the cross in my place. Through his death... Jesus has removed the barrier. And this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Jesus has removed the barrier between God and us. And now we can approach Him boldly and confidently. When you think about your walk with the Lord, are those two words that come to mind? Do those two words come to mind about how you approach the Father? They probably don't very often. But because of Jesus... Notice I didn't say because of your good works, because of how much time you spend every morning reading your Bible or in prayer, but because of Jesus, we can go and approach him with boldness and with confidence. Brothers and sisters, that removes the weight from us. We do not have to walk through this life in a performance-based Christianity. Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice, Removed the barrier between us and God. Glory to Him. In dying for us, Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He took that on Himself. God has also canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Colossians 2 says, nailing it to the cross. The debt that we owe has been paid. Simply put, God's wrath and our debts are removed by Christ on the cross. Let that sink in for just a second. God's wrath, our debts were taken away by Christ on the cross. Think about how the curtain was torn because Matthew's specific in how it's torn. Remember, it could have been as high as 60 feet tall. No human being is going to get up there and tear a four-inch thick curtain from the top to the bottom. So what does this tell us? If it wasn't a person that could do it, God did it. Only God could do it. It was obvious that someone, something supernatural had to be behind this. And that's exactly what it was. God was behind it all. So what does this mean? That God is the one who tore the curtain. I think it means that God initiates a relationship with us. He initiates salvation because he paid the sacrifice to make it possible. But he didn't just make it possible. He didn't just stop there. He actually makes it happen from beginning to end. Think back, and if you're looking for something to read this week in your quiet time, read Ephesians chapter 1. And look at all that God did to make your salvation possible. I'll just highlight some of the the, the verbs in that text, in love, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, God does seven different things, and this isn't even all of them. He predestines, He adopts, He redeems, He forgives, He blesses, He unites, He guarantees, He seals. Why? Why would God do this? Well, verse 14 in Ephesians 1 says it so plainly. At the very end of all of those things, it says, to the praise of His glory. Let me put it a different way. 
God does the work of loving and saving sinners for his own glory. That's why he does it. Isaiah mentions that. Paul mentions that numerous times. It's for the praise of his own glory. The way has been made for sinners to be reconciled back to God. That's an incredible truth that we should never get over. God's display of welcoming sinners back to himself didn't just stop at tearing the curtain from the top to the bottom, though. We saw that saints were raised to life, started walking around. This was a foreshadowing, I think, of what was to come. This was a a preview, as I already mentioned. For all those who are united with God through Christ, this was a preview. So I'd say it this way. Christian, if you're a believer, you have hope of new life because Jesus killed death. Did you hear that? You have hope of new life being raised with Christ because Jesus killed death and he overcame the grave through the power of God. Even the non-believing Roman centurion and everybody that was there, they said the same thing. Man, this is the Son of God. There was no other explanation for everything that had happened. It was only because of God. They saw him for who he truly was. I think this leads us into kind of the last application point that I want to make today. And it's this. When the unbelieving world sees people saved from their sin and raised to new life in Christ, I think they're also going to see Jesus for who he really is. The son of God who takes away sin. So Christian, let me say just something else to you today. Your very life is a testimony to and a part of God's redemptive story. John in his prayer earlier mentioned that this this is history, but it's also his story. And it's an amazing fact that God is writing you into his story. He's writing us in. We're not worthy of that. There's no reason why he should do that sort of a thing for us. And yet your life is a testimony to it. By God's grace and because of his mercy and his love, dead sinners are given new life, are made alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2 says that. The message of the gospel revolves around the work of Christ on the cross. It happened there. It is emphatically highlighted with his miraculous resurrection from the dead. And it continues being a miracle every time a sinner is saved by grace. Every time. Another reason why I was excited to preach this this morning is because I get to read a children's book. Parents, if you're struggling to help your kids understand uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is a great resource. Um, I want to read part of it to you. I realize you're not all children, but um, there's some good theology in here. So we're not going to read it all. Uh, you, You remember the creation story. I know you won't be able to see all of this, but you can kind of get a hint with some of the things. This is right after Adam and Eve sinned. And the story goes like this. The people did a terrible thing. They decided they didn't want to do what God said. They decided they wanted a world without God in charge. God calls this sin. Sin spoils things. So sin has no place in God's wonderful garden. God said to the people, you can't live with me in my garden anymore. And he sent them outside. 
to show the people they had to stay outside, God put some warrior angels in front of the garden. The angels were like a big keep out sign. Now, things were sometimes bad and people were sometimes sad. But people still kept sinning because they didn't want God to be in charge. So no one could come into God's wonderful place. God said, because of your sin, you can't come in. God wanted people to remember, it's wonderful to live with him. But because of your sin, you can't come in. So he told the people to build a special building called his temple where he would live. In the middle of the temple was the most wonderful place in the world. The place where God was with nothing bad and nothing sad. It was very exciting. But then God told people to put a big curtain around this wonderful place. The curtain had pictures of warrior angels on it. It was a big keep out sign. For hundreds of years, the temple curtain reminded people that God said, it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. Babies became grown-ups and had babies, and those babies became grown-ups and had babies, and those babies became grown-ups and had babies. And hundreds of summers and winters passed by, and the keep-out curtain stayed in the temple. Then one day, God's Son came to live in this world as a person. He was called Jesus. Jesus always did what God said. Jesus never sinned. And Jesus visited the temple where the keep-out curtain hung. Jesus knew that things were sometimes bad and sometimes sad. Jesus said that God had sent him to open the way back to God's wonderful place, where there would be nothing bad and no one sad. But... people still didn't want to let God be in charge. So they decided to put Jesus on a cross to die. It was the most bad thing that had ever happened. It was the most sad day of all time. But Jesus had a plan. He'd always planned to die on the cross. What a strange plan. Why would God's son plan to die? On the cross, Jesus took our sin, all the bad things we do, and all the sad things they cause. Jesus took them all from us. And when he did, something amazing, astonishing, astounding happened. The curtain tore. God had ripped up the keep outside. God's wonderful place is open again. Because Jesus died, we can go in. There's more to the story that we're not going to get into today. I want us to think about that last phrase. Because Jesus died, we can go in. Brothers and sisters, that's the only way. It's not about your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. It's not about how well you behave. It's not about how much money you give to a church. It's not about any of those things. Our way to God does not happen through any effort of our own. It happens because Jesus died. And because he died, he has torn the temple and ripped up the keep outside. That's what that means. Next week, we talk about the resurrection. And we move on from there into the Great Commission. But it starts here. 
we would never have any reason to go and tell people to follow God if Jesus had not gone and taken our place. And so with joy, we read texts like the crucifixion and the death of Christ. With joy, we sing songs about the blood of Christ covering our sin, the blood that was spilled, the cross of Christ, the old rugged cross. We talk about it being beautiful. How on earth? It's because of this reason. Without the cross, we would have no hope. But with the cross, we have confidence and we have boldness to approach the Father. Let's do that together now. Let's pray. God, it's not, it's not in our own confidence that we come to you. It's not because I have performed well this week that I come before you. Lord, because we may think that. We may think, well, if I've done my Christian duty well this week, I come before you and ask these things of you. But if I haven't, I I tuck my tail and hide in the corner because surely you wouldn't want to hear from a wretch like me. Lord, that's not the picture that we get today. The picture is that Christ has done it all and that it's all your doing. Lord, Ephesians 1 reminded us of that. The forgiveness that we have, the adoption that we have, the seal and guarantee of the Spirit that is with us even now is all because of Christ. And that's the power of the cross. And so we thank you, Lord, for texts like this. Unusual in places, Lord, but so life-giving, so full of hope for the Christian. Lord, for, for some who may not know you, Lord, our, our prayer as believers is that they would set themselves aside and submit to Jesus, to submit to the Father. Lord, that we would give up control, forsake our own sin, and Lord, and cast ourselves, lean into the finished work of Christ on the cross. God, we're so thankful that you tore the curtain. You did it, and now we can approach you with confidence and in love. And so we thank you for everything that we've looked at today. And not just that, Lord, but what it means as we go out and what it means to how we love our neighbor, our spouse, our kids. What we do when we're faced with a trial, when we're made angry. How do we respond, Lord? Well, we see the example of Christ We see the effect of the cross and what it does for sinners who give up their lives to follow him. And so I pray that everyone in this room would follow him in that way today. Thank you for the power of the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.